We're in the book of Exodus today, book of Exodus chapter 19, if you have a Bible with you. As you're turning there, let me just reference a, a couple of very brief quotes. The reformer, Martin Luther, wrote to his theological opponent, Erasmus, and said, your thoughts of God are too human. Your thoughts of God are too human. Similarly, J.B. Phillips in the 1950s wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. And more recently still is an excellent little book that I hope everyone gets a chance to read eventually before heaven by Orlando Sayer titled simply, Big God. Well, these quotes and book titles should lead us all to ask, are my thoughts of God too human? Is my God too small? Do I have a big God? How big is my God? Well, fallen human beings know that there is a God, but apart from God's grace, they will always seek to shrink down that God to a manageable size. Some will try to shrink God down to simply his creation or part of his creation like a tree or wind. Others will try to shrink God down to the size of a statue or a totem. Some imagine him to be an aloof deity really far away. And some simply plug their ears, close their spiritual eyes, and pretend that he's not there. But even professing Christians may try to shrink God down to more manageable proportions, perhaps to a, a caricature of one part of his character or his nature. Some like to think of God maybe only in terms of as a daddy with a big and warm lap or as a, a cosmic Santa Claus or a genie or on the other side of the emotional spectrum, perhaps as, as a meanie, as a harsh drill sergeant. But God is who he is. He is not what we want him to be, and he is not what we just happen to think of him as. He is who he is. But the good news about that is that God intends to make himself known. He reveals himself. He doesn't reveal, he doesn't leave us to, to guesswork. And to quote from another famous book title, this by Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. Well, the book of Exodus, as we've been seeing, is a story about God revealing him showing, demonstrating, speaking. It's about the God who makes himself known. Recall that recurring phrase. Thirteen times so far in various forms in the first 16 chapters, 
God, it says, is doing this or that thing, that they may know that he is the Lord, or that you may know that there is no one like our God. God does this or that, that we, that they, that we all may know what he's like. And in Exodus, he saves and he shows and he speaks. And as we come to chapter 19 this week, these themes are starting to reach a peak, and actually a literal peak, because we come to Mount Sinai, where the people will now remain there for about a year. And there God will show up in an unprecedented way, and he will speak in an unprecedented way. He's already shown his power and his glory in various ways, like in the plagues. He's already spoken here or there, mostly to Moses, and sometimes through Moses to others. But now God is about to speak and show in a sort of full-throated, full-throttled Kind of way. Now, the speaking actually, the, the full throated speaking comes in chapter 20. That's where we get the Ten Commandments, and we'll look at that next week. But in chapter 19, it's the setup where God brings his people to the mountain, he calls Moses up on the mountain, and then God comes down upon the mountain. And even in this, this setup, if you will, we learn much about our God and much about ourselves. So let's read Exodus 19 together, the whole chapter. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness... There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and sat them before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But 
but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Well, our passage breaks up neatly into three parts, and then we'll see a fourth, a counterpart, in the New Testament. So let's first consider the God of a covenant people. The God of a covenant people in the first eight verses. In a word, the first eight verses are about covenant. God has saved his people on account of a covenant and in covenant with his people. He saved them from Egypt, we could say, unto himself and for relationship and worship. So all this looks backward and forward in time. Backward, we see that in verse 3, tell this to the house of Jacob. House of Jacob. Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three generations of patriarchs that, back in Genesis, received those grand, earth-shattering, earth-reverberating promises. They're in Genesis 12, and then Genesis 15 and 17, and then repeated again in the successive generations. These promises encompass... Well, from this family coming a multitude, a people, a nation, and them having a blessed land one day. And from this people, there comes a blessing to all the nations. And so in the book of Genesis, we only get one generation past Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we end the book of Genesis with that extended family all in Egypt. They're a pretty big extended family, but they're certainly no nation. And they're in Egypt, certainly not the promised land. And as we turn a page 
into the book of Exodus, we find, at least in the Hebrew text, the very first word is and. And. Most books, well, really, no good books, begin with the word and. It assumes something came before, and indeed, something did come before. There's a sense in which Exodus isn't a new book, but a continuation of the grand story of the first five books, or the books of Moses, we could call them. The story is continuing, despite a 400-year gap from Genesis to Exodus, despite now slavery as we begin the book of Exodus But remember, in fact, you might want to turn back to it. It's an important verse at the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 24 of Exodus. Remember, in their slavery, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There it is. And there's that call of Moses in Exodus 3. Remember, there's Moses' struggle to accept that call to be God's messengers to the Israelites and Egyptians. And it's then, look at chapter 3, verse 12. And note this carefully, since chapter 3, verse 12, you'll see, relates so closely to Exodus 19 and following. In Exodus 3, 12, when Moses doubted his call, God said, This shall be a sign for you. That I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What mountain were they on? Well, Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. Moses received this promise of a sign on Mount Sinai. And here he is now, after a long and windy road, back on the mountain, the sign is confirmed, the promise of chapter 3, verse 12 is fulfilled. And the backward look from Exodus 19 continues, you see in verse 4, where Moses is to tell the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you, notice this language, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What wonderful imagery. Scholars have noted several aspects or possible aspects to this idea of being borne out on eagles' wings. Eagles, of course, are birds of prey. And we could say that God has gone on the attack for Israel against the enemy. Eagles are We could say birds of rescue, at least in folklore and in biblical imagery like this verse. Or in in The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, I can't remember which one, but the, the eagles come and they jump on the backs and they're flown away to safety. Eagles are protectors, of course, especially of their young. We see this aspect to eagle life in Deuteronomy 32 when Moses says of God he found him Israel that is in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him he cared for him he kept him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young spreading out its wings catching them bearing them on its pinions like all Mama birds that care for their their young in the nest. There's 
this picturesque tenderness and gentleness and intimacy. And some of us wouldn't have thought to apply that kind of imagery to God. Tender, intimate, caring, like in a nest, like nuzzling over us, caring for us, keeping us warm, providing for us. And some of us can only imagine that kind of God. And hence, we might struggle with this other aspect that's found in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. And here's where that backward look turns forward. If, in the future, if indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, notice that God's saving work precedes obedience. But that saving work should indeed lead to obedience. In some ways, this is the simple economy of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't your doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works. Well, something similar is part of the Exodus story, no doubt. For surely Israel was not saved from Egyptian slavery because they were so, so godly, so faithful, so sensitive, so likable. Or so impressive. No, God has saved them because of his promise. Because of his covenant. It's by his doing. It's for his purposes. It's to make himself known. It's for his glory. They couldn't have earned that. They couldn't have earned the rescue. They couldn't have earned the provision of the manna or the bread. No, they were only grumbling. They couldn't earn it and manifestly they didn't. But now that they are out of Egypt, on the other side of the Red Sea, well, God intends for them more than just their freedom, as in their autonomy. He intends, again, relationship. He rescued them from serving Pharaoh in order that they might serve or worship him. Alec Motier, an Old Testament scholar, in his commentary on Exodus, he suggests a, a sequence of things here in verses 4 and 5 of our passage. He says there's what the Lord has done, what the Lord requires now, and what the Lord promises going forward. Or, or we could say there's God's saving work, then there's our obedience and then there are blessings that follow. You see, verse 5, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. That's the blessing that's going to come. Not earned, but in light of grace. With obedience as the response to grace, there is blessing. And, and Alec Motier says so poignantly, Nothing must ever be allowed to upset this order. 
Isn't that good? Nothing must ever be allowed to upset this order, what the Lord has done, what the Lord requires, and the blessings that flow from it. Now, next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about that word covenant in verse 5 and what covenant it refers to and whether it's conditional or not because there's a, another word, if, toward the beginning of that sentence. But, but for this week, let's just focus on these relational and purposeful aspects found in verse 5 and 6. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples. There's the world, and God owns it all. But then there's this private stash, and Israel has been made his private stash. Verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation, a distinct nation, one that will stand out among the nations around them. And they will be a kingdom of priests? What does that mean? Well, we can think of that phrase in both upward terms and outward terms. Upward to God, God's people were to be a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? Well, they're close up in their hands-on in the worship of God. They're the, they're the ones in the Holy of Holies later on when the tabernacle was built. But also outwardly in relation to the world, they are to be a kingdom of priests, which means they're to represent God to the world. They are to go between God and the world. This is what God intends for his for his whole people, for all people. Yes, in some sense, there'll be a designation of priests that's still to come. Professional priests. Those of the, the line of Aaron, the Levites. But in another sense, the whole kingdom was to be a people who worship God and witness to God. The apostle Peter surely had this Kind of thing in mind when he wrote 1 Peter 2.9 in writing to Gentiles. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, I would love to spend some time poking around in 1 Peter 2.9, but we don't have the time. I'll leave you to that. Back to Exodus 19, and secondly, we see the God of unapproachable glory, verses 9 to 15. The God of unapproachable glory. Remember, God told Moses that he's going to come down on Mount Sinai and he's going to speak for all the people to hear. In large part, this will validate Moses as God speaks and Moses is there and uniquely on the top of the mountain hearing from God. But it will also reveal God and his ways and something about themselves to the Israelites. Now, of course, God's presence is everywhere. We say he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Heaven and earth can't contain him, 
much less a medium-sized mountain. But God, here and there, reveals his presence in special, visible ways. Now, this is called a theophany, a vision of God, an appearance of God. And when it happens, there are implications for those around it. Like in Exodus 3, when God showed up revealing his presence in a burning bush, and Moses was required to take his sandals off because the ground had been made holy by the presence of God. But God is going to come down on Mount Sinai, and the implications here are that the people can't go near the mountain. They can't touch the mountain. They can't go up the mountain. The covenant God, in his kindness, is drawing near to his people. But this covenant God is holy, holy, holy. This covenant God is perfect, and his people are not. God draws near, but not with a handshake or a high five. He draws near, but you better keep your distance. You wouldn't have thought of that, would you? Not on our own. But, but the difference between God's perfect holiness and human sinfulness is so great that it actually needs some literal distance. So the people are told, verse 10, that they must consecrate themselves and wash their clothes, which I, I take to be a picture of their need for spiritual washing and cleansing and purity and preparation. Moses even adds in verse 15, do not go near a woman. Why? Well, it's not certain. It's not clear why. But, but my best guess is that this heightens the seriousness of the moment. I think it illustrates the need for readiness and undistractedness because God's coming to town in a day or two. But even with the cleanest of clothes and even without any sexual relations, they still not, they still cannot come on the mountain. They can't come in their own strength, in their own doing, in their own cleanness. This is all very serious stuff. Whoever touches the mountain dies. Why? Why so serious? Why so deadly? Why so rigid? Well, because God was teaching his people about his holiness and their sin and the gap between those two that really needs reconciling someday. And he was teaching them in visible, unmistakable, and even geographic terms. He's there. You cannot be there. It's actually in mercy that God warns them and keeps them back and, and has Moses set up a blockade for the people to keep from going too far. God instructs Moses that when the trumpet blasts one long, big blast, then the people can come up to the mountain, verse 13 says. Not on the mountain with Moses and Aaron later on, but, but up to the mountain and still not touching it. 
The trumpet blasts because the king is arriving. And so they can step up to those red velvet ropes, but they can't go past them. And this, in many ways, is the most fundamental, basic, and necessary thing that we need to embrace on our way to the gospel, the distance between a holy God and sinful people. There is no gospel. There is no good news. And the cross of Jesus makes absolutely no sense unless we understand the problem that it addresses. There is no hope for ever enjoying God's nearness his wings in his nest, unless we first understand we have no right to be there. Even in the New Testament, even under the gospel, well, we're told in 1 Timothy 6 that Jesus is the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. Yeah, until you understand that, you won't get the Gospels talking about Jesus with children on his lap. Back to Exodus 19 again. And thirdly, we see the God who comes down. On the third day, God comes down to Mount Sinai. And what was it like well, let's just read it again in case we've even slightly forgotten. Verses 16 and following. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The God who comes down is a God who dwells in unapproachable glory and holiness. Without a passage like this, how would we think that God's presence would be manifested or displayed? I mean, just imagine the unthinkable that God consults us about some visible ways in which, physical ways in which his, his presence might be manifested. Some of us might say, God, just do a perfect sunset, the best you've ever done. I love sunsets. Some might say, Lord, do a spectacular star show where they all move around, even though that seems impossible in our cosmology. Others might say, show us a unicorn on a rainbow or a box full of puppies wrestling around and oh how cute that would be well 
God chose to reveal his presence here in none of those ways, but with fire and lightning and thunder and smoke and an earthquake in a trumpet blast that just kept getting louder and louder. This kind of thing had never happened before. This was a special mountain moment. In chapter 20, as we'll see next week, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people are still reeling. You can see in verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Ah, yes, Moses. Let's not forget about Moses here. The man who went up and back down. And then went up and then came back down. And then he went up again. And he came back down three times. In chapter 19, Moses goes up, then down. The repetition, I think, if nothing else, highlights Moses' role as a kind of mediator in this picture. He's the go-between, literally. He is going between God and the people. He's not just a messenger of words. He's a mediator. Now, he was far from sinless. But for a time, God mercifully allowed there to be an imperfect mediator in his presence for his people's good. The people certainly understood their need for a mediator. They couldn't go up to the mountain to meet with God. They couldn't even take in the words of God themselves. They thought they needed Moses for that. Job, maybe the oldest book of our Bible, certainly before the days of Moses. Job, in chapter 9, that figure, he, he, he lamented that God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, and that we should come to trial together. He said, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Now, Job's dilemma was his suffering, and he felt like he needed a, a hearing with God, but he knew you don't just knock on his front door there's no front door. Where is he? And you know, he knew that you don't have the, the right to just waltz up and point the finger, even if you could find the, the front door. And so he anticipated the possibility, or at least the hope someday, that there would be a go-between. Someone between, someone, something, some God-like being who would go between and at least for a time, Moses was that go-between. Moses understood his role in this way according to Deuteronomy 5. He said to the people, I stood between the Lord and you at that time because you were afraid of the fire. But we not only have Moses' own words about him in his mediatory role, and we not only have the literal geography of him going up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, we also have Reference to priests in verse 22. Notice, let the priests, God says, who come near to the Lord 
consecrate themselves. Now, Moses finds this puzzling, and so have scholars, biblical scholars, ever since. Uh, Scholars are puzzled by this mainly because we don't yet, as of Exodus 19, have the institution of priests. That comes in Exodus 28, if you want to check that out on your own time. And so what are priests doing here? Well, a couple of options. Number one, perhaps there were prototypical priests before Exodus 28. You know, kind of an early form of priests. Or another option could be that they're spoken of in Exodus 19, what we call anachronistically. You know, not according to chronology, out of time in a sense. Because Exodus being a book that's written for a later generation. Those in the wilderness later on, about to enter the promised land. Exodus being written then, those people would know about the priesthood very well. And they could handle a reference to the priests here as maybe men who would one day be priests. Like in chapter 28, I think... Their mention here is a hint of what's to come. There is a priesthood that is going to come. Moses will have his special role in meeting with God and hearing from God, but then there'll be another wing of this institution where priests will meet with God and intercede for the people by way of sacrifice. So Exodus 19 is about a God who comes down, but because of his unapproachable glory, And human sinfulness. He must be a God who also provides a mediator. And for a time, God provided an imperfect mediator in Moses. And in time, and for a long time actually, he provided that imperfect and temporary institution with priests and sacrifices. But neither were enough. Neither were enough. Neither of those could be the final solution. And so fourthly, we need, and God provides, a better mediator. The God of a better mediator. And here's where we go to the New Testament. Where we find a perfect mediator. A true one. We could turn to a passage like 1 Timothy 2.5 where it says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We could turn to a passage like Hebrews 9, verse 24, which tells us that Christ has entered in not the holy places made with hands, like the tabernacle and the temple or even that mountain, These are copies of the true things, the writer of Hebrews says. But Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Mount Sinai was a temporary outpost for God's throne room. Later, the tabernacle and the temple would be. So when Moses went up to the mountain, it's as if he went up to... A little pocket of heaven. But Christ went all the way up. He went into heaven itself. Not to the clouds, but through the clouds. Well, we could turn to 1 Timothy 2.5 or Hebrews 9.24, but we must 
turn to Hebrews 12. Turn there in your Bibles with me. Hebrews 12. Because in Hebrews 12, we have about 17 verses which explain and build upon Exodus 19. And we have sort of divine commentary, we could say, in Hebrews 12 about our passage. And so as Christians, we can't do without that. we got to hear what God says and what God has done since Exodus 19. And so in Hebrews 12, we begin reading in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. Not that the mountain at Sinai that day when God came down could be touched, but it was physical. You see? You've not come to that kind of touchable, physical, tangible mountain, a blazing fire with darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given, even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You've not come to that kind of mountain. Verse 22, but you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God. You've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, we can't get into all the specifics there, but the general message should be clear by way of similarity and contrast to mountains and to mediators. Mount Sinai had Moses as its mediator, and that was good then because the people did see, even from afar. They did hear and they did receive God's words through Moses. But the overall message was, you cannot come nearer. But with Mount Sinai, a spiritual mountain, talked about in Haggai, if you want to go looking for it there. With, with Mount Zion, we have Jesus as the perfect Mediator, not an imperfect mediator, a perfect mediator who went all the way in and up to God for us and for our salvation. And through Jesus now, we who believe, we can come into the full presence of God. It might not look like this is the presence of God. You, you may prefer a mountain that shakes, and lightning and cloud and fire. But I tell you, we, we stand in the presence of angels here this morning. We stand next to Jesus, our big brother and mediator. This morning, you can't see it, but we are in the presence of God, the judge of all. 
with all the redeemed saints who've passed on thus far. We've come to Jesus. And we're there now. This is Mount Zion. You see what this means for, for daily worship. I mean, we're in the presence of God no matter what we do now. We're priests for crying out loud. And you see what this means for our corporate worship. With both our daily worship and our corporate worship, let me just bullet point some things here. Consider the sole basis of that worship. You come in with Jesus as the mediator with his sprinkled blood, or you don't come in at all. There's no access. Stand back. But with Jesus, you come in. On that basis, there is full access to the presence of God and to his very throne room. Consider the tenor and the confidence of this worship now. The, the joy not just fear, but fear and awe and joy in all the right mixtures. So this passage of Hebrews 12 will end, verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful, thankful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is still a consuming fire. And consider the company in which this worship is held. Angels, the firstborn of heaven, God the judge of all, and Jesus the mediator. What does this mean for us as a church? Well, it means when we wake up on Sunday morning, it's a different day. There's anticipation in the air. At least there should be. You save your fights for Sunday afternoon if you need them. Because the church is assembling with heaven this morning. Bite your tongue and turn up the music or pray to God for help, but come in with eagerness and expectancy, maybe even early, if I may say so. <laughs> come in with each other, for each other, for the glory of God, to taste and see that the Lord is good. As we sing together as a church and as we sit under the hearing of his word preached, it is worship done on the sole basis of Jesus' blood with full access to the very throne of God with this beautiful mixture of confidence and joy and fear and awe in the company of all of heaven's residents. Now here's what this means for you if you haven't yet come to this Jesus. If you don't know whether he has entered heaven with blood for you if you haven't yet followed him on his way up to access with God well you've already heard how this happens it happens through what he did and you simply believing that to be so and trusting it asking him to receive it and here's what it also means if you 
choose this day to ignore it. Well, Hebrews 12, in between the bits that I've read, it warns. It says this, verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Present tense, ongoingly, right now. For if they, the Israelites in the wilderness, did not escape when they refused him. That's where it's going, by the way. They refused him who warned them on earth. How much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, Exodus 19 time, his voice shook the earth. But now he is promised a future time still to come. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Do not reject his voice that speaks today to invite you into his mercy and covenant and relationship. Do not refuse the voice that doesn't speak from a mountaintop, but from heaven itself. That's his pulpit. Do not refuse the one who can not only shake a mountain, he will shake heaven and earth when he comes again. Let's pray for God's help to believe that and to live in light of it. Lord, we do indeed pray for those with us who don't yet have this hope and this confidence. And perhaps they themselves feel in their very beings this morning shaken. Perhaps, Lord, you would shake them for their eternal good. You would shake them unto security in Jesus. We pray, Lord, you'd give them ears to hear the one who is speaking, not me, ultimately you. And we pray, Lord, that all of us or more of us in this room than perhaps when we started this morning would gather routinely for grateful, thankful, happy, reverent, awe-filling worship for having received a kingdom that can't be shaken. We thank you, our God, who is a consuming fire, that we have an advocate, a mediator. And we pray and rejoice in his name today. Amen.